We are two unique female professionals and friends that have come together to have meaningful conversations and a little fun along the way. Welcome to the Arable Podcast, where curious minds grow. I'm your host, Jenna Mountain, and I'm your other host, Kimberly Galindo. We have the absolute joy of spending time with our dear friends and colleagues and team members, um, Rebecca Salazar and Abdi Zelaya today. Uh, Rebecca and Abdi are two of our incredible counselors at Aspen House. Like y'all, just brilliant clinicians. And so we're just so excited to have them on the podcast with us today. Yeah. Yeah, we're so giddy about this. Um, we're excited about this conversation. We're excited um, for the opportunity to hang out with you guys in this context. Um, you know, at Aspen House, we use any excuse to have deep, robust conversations and dialogue with each other. Um, and so, um, as always, this is such a joy. I want to dive in by letting each of you introduce yourselves. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, both personally and professionally, whatever feels appropriate to you, so that our listeners can um, get to know you. And Abdi, I'll let you go first. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you guys so much for allowing me to join you today. Um, I'm really excited, especially because this is my jam and what we're going to be talking about. But so my name is Abdi Zalaya. I am an LPC associate. I um, specialize working with trauma, sexuality, all the things. I'm bilingual, bicultural. I identify as a Latina. So I am originally from Honduras in Central America. So um, I, I really love being able to have multiple cultures and how I incorporate that in my work and what I do with mental health. Um, I have grown up in ministry. So that is also a part of who I am. I'm a pastor's kid. Mm-hmm. So PK. Um, but yeah, that's a little bit about me. Yeah. And you have some background both in studying psychology and uh, ministry. Yes. Yeah. Miss Rebecca. Awesome. I have to go over my elevator pitch in my head. I have to dust it off. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I have to dust it off. Well, I'm just like Abby. I'm so excited to do this. I'm honored to do this. Um, My name is Rebecca Salazar. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist associate. I'm EMDR trained, trauma informed. Um, I identify as African-American and Mexican. Um, Love a little bit of everything. I love, you know, collard greens and menudo that's my jam like that's what I enjoy <laughs> I love chipotle I love it so, it's so much fun. I get to like share those things yes. I'm an Enneagram six um love telling people that I'm a wife I'm a pastor's wife so uh mm-hmm. that's fun enjoy that and yeah I I love love working with black men women couples uh dealing mm-hmm. with childhood trauma intergenerational trauma, uh, perfectionism, imposter syndrome, and all those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah. Awesome. So, so excited to have you guys here today. Um, so we wanted to spend some time talking with you guys about um, mental health, race, cultural dynamics. Um, we've had these conversations as a team with you guys one-on-one, two two with one, and in lots of different ways, and just 
Mm -hmm. I love the way that both of you have that conversation um, with us. And it's just, it's always so robust and so full of um, wisdom and joy for me. And so we thought, oh my goodness, we need to do this on the podcast. And so I think it's a conversation that's needed always, but I think it's timely now um, in the, the context in which we're in. And I, I can't think of two better counselors, not just because you're at Aspen House, but two better mm-hmm. counselors to explore this conversation yes. with. So let's dive in. Let's let's start conjecturing, talking, having the robust dialogue that we love to have with you guys. Um, so I think I would start with kind of it just, and this is for either one of you, what drives your passion um, for mental health, for helping communities of color, um, multi-ethnic, multi-race? Um, you know, there's a lot there. Um, Rebecca, you've talked about serving the Black community, Abdi, the Latinx community. Um, but just kind of what, speaking to your passion there with specifically that combination, just the mental health and, and then race and it's a complex conversation and the the drive there could be really unique and different for both of you so I'd love to hear to hear about that I would answer that with sort of a heart of why not with working with black and brown people and populations um I don't know if it's actually ever been a thing that's like it's driving my passion like this it's really driving it just because it's just always been something I wanted to do. I am black and Mexican. Like this has been my experience. This has been the people I've been surrounded with and people of color, black and brown people are just as deserving of the same Mm -hmm. psychoeducation, the same resources, the same compassion, the same safety and space that's offered to other people. Um, And it's such a hard question because I think when I sit with it, it kind of makes me think it's very rarely asked of white people, like as a white clinician, you know, what drives you to work with other white people? And it's like, it sounds silly, right? (laughs) Saying it out loud, Mm -hmm. but um, I kind of see it the same way as asking Mm -hmm. anybody that's of color, like, why not? This is just always something I wanted to do. something that I feel is important to people that look like me and that Mm -hmm. they're deserving of. Yeah. Yeah. I think for me, when I think about, um, you know, just like my passion for mental health in general um, and what led me to this point, and it has been a lot with life experiences, being in ministry and being overseas and seeing the need and the kind of that added layer of working with a specialized population um, with like the Latino, the Latinx community or the BIPOC, BIPOC individuals, it's just an added layer to it. Um, And I think for Mm -hmm. me, it's because I can identify and share a lot of the experiences Mm -hmm. that many of my clients come in saying like, Hey, um, how, how do I incorporate my, my faith or my, what I look like and my culture into what I'm struggling with in my mental health. Um, so for me, it's, it's more of like experiences, but also because I know firsthand what it is to be on that other side of being a Brown Mm -hmm. woman 
struggling with mental health yeah and having mm-hmm. someone to hold that space mm-hmm. absolutely this last year um has been so painful and so unique um uh, not because it's the first terrible year or the first um, really hard, challenging year by by any stretch. It just has some of its own unique uniquenesses to it. Everything from the fact that these types of tragedies are happening in an era where we have technological access to the fact that we've had um, what I would say are multiple pandemics that have coexisted. Um, it's not just this health pandemic. It's also... Um, the, the coming to a head of social justice pandemics. Um, and so in the context of this last year, when it comes to the topic of mental health for the BIPOC community, um, I, I would love to ask both of you your opinion as to what the unique mental health needs are um, for these different communities um, based on the events of the last 12 months. Um, based on kind of kind of where we are currently. Um, this is just, I think for all people, this has been a um, very painful and lengthy experience far longer than any of us would have wanted as far as the virus pandemic. Um, but that that has not happened in a silo, in a vacuum. There have been other things happening. So I would love to hear from you all, from you both. Um, what we need to understand, what you've seen, what you would want um, people to know. I think in regards to some of the the needs that have come up with mental health, with BIPOC communities, um, I think about just the identity and the cultural aspect of it. When I, and mm. I, I'm going to speak just on behalf of the Latinx community because that's, that's how I identify and, and where I can actually pull from personal experiences, but I think of when I look at, you know, what identifies me as a Latina, um, being Hispanic and uh, bilingual, who I am. So there's these different parts that add to it. So when you think of Latinos, the Latinx community, you think of um, just big groups, big families, everybody gathering, everybody, multiple people being able to join together and loving on each other and celebrating and um, cultural milestones and how you celebrate. It's always big celebrations, big parties, you know, it, it, everybody um, is able to enjoy that. And I think what the pandemic has um, brought was the inability to celebrate your culture um, in the way that we know how Mm. to. Um, When I talk to friends and family and, you know, just the lack of being able to be around people, but there are certain milestones, even, you know, like for, for, for younger kids, um, I think of like my niece and how she's turning 15 and not being able to have a quinceanera. Mm. Um, and like, for me, I think of that because when I was 15, I didn't get to have one. And to this day, I like say like, it's not fair. I'm the only one out of all my siblings. that did not have a quinceanera <laughs> and it's still a part of, you know, my identity and I complain and I, you know, gripe about it. So I can only imagine that was my choice, not having one, but I can only imagine not being able to have one because of your current life circumstances that we are all kind of going through. So I think it takes away a lot of, you know, that Mm -hmm. cultural identity and being able to celebrate and 
have that togetherness. Um, so it kind of takes away like who you are. And then all of a sudden you're just like, I don't even know what to do with myself. How, how, how do I do life? Um, cause that has been taken away because mm-hmm. of the pandemic. Ooh, yeah. I completely echo Abdi. I think what we see in BIPOC communities, how we have thrived is community. That That is how we mm-hmm. survive through so much that has happened in our world. And um, I think of Black people specifically, things like the church being a pillar, being able to gather mm-hmm. in church is a pillar in our community. Kind of like Abdi said, being able to connect with each other, um, being able to come together for parties and, and things like that and, and celebrating things. I even think of like millennials and how we're kind of, we're, we're in that middle space where we have created family within our friendships and mm-hmm. you have something like the pandemic to where I, I can't even lean on that as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and it affects us. I, I think of, yeah the racial trauma that we experienced in 2020. And I think yes. the pandemic, it, I, I, I've had this conversation with my husband where he has said, the pandemic, it, it forced us to look at things. I couldn't watch my basketball. I couldn't watch football. I couldn't hang out with so-and-so. Yeah. I had to look at what was happening in our world and so did everyone else. But he said the downfall of that is that it's a constant onslaught of information, yep. of this this trauma you see on television and I can't go to my mom's house. I can't go to my friend's house. I can't connect. I'm just alone in my space. And I I really, I don't think, or we're starting to understand, we're starting to educate people. Like that's impactful for us as a people. Yes. Like that's, that affects us. It's heavy. And it's okay to say that that's heavy. Um, I think for so long we have leaned on which I don't have a problem with. I think we've leaned on just kind of pray through it, um, mm-hmm. lean on your community. And I think those are beautiful things. We mm-hmm. don't want to take that away, but I think it was 2020 that people started to say, okay, wait, I, I think I need something more. I think I need yeah. something in addition. And I think I need to talk to someone because everyone, we were so sort of drained in 2020 that it was just hard to give the space to to talk about things so I think it kind of woke us up in 2020 that this is maybe we need to explore this avenue of mental health of talking with someone Mm -hmm. in a way that we've never have so it sounds like Rebecca it's it's opened up an a, a willingness to pursue mental health where maybe there's been um, I think, and like you said, not, not bad, bad use of things, right. Community right. prayer, uh, faith systems, that kind of thing. But this openness to like, okay, all of that's been ripped from me. Yeah. What are the mm-hmm. other avenues and, and this collective trauma on top of a collective trauma and we're all trauma therapists. One of the like phase one things that we do is go, okay, support system, uh, community, other people just in general. But then you're talking about the black and the Latinx community and how that like has been the threat of survival. You take that away. Mm. It's pushed to the forefront. Oh, okay. Where do we, where do we get this help and aid? And that might be through mental health avenues. Um, I'm just curious, just 
in, in your own experiences, you take that context, you take that like, okay, maybe mental health is an avenue through which I would pursue the, the challenges that you see in that, the, the shifts that you're seeing in that. Cause I think, I mean, as we've talked around our table and then as you guys talk today, I know that you've seen shifts. Um, cause I know that there are some, um, I mean, I'm married to a Hispanic and I know, um, just sitting around the family table with extended family and just the, um, the openness to mental health, um, really kind of even understanding what I do. I can't, I can't tell you how many times it's been like, okay, um, in my, in my Latinx family, I am referred to as Kimmy. That is my, that is my nickname. And so it's Kimmy, what do you do? Like, they're just so trying to understand like the mental health context and, and getting help. And so, um, but I, I, I too, just in my personal life, I've seen more of an openness to, I think this is the avenue, but I'm just curious as clinicians of color, kind of what you've seen in those conversations personally, professionally, as you've looked at the mental health needs, how people are pursuing getting help, being more open to, to getting that help in a mental health space versus going to what traditionally they would have before historically. Yeah. I've definitely had a huge increase in friends and family, like you Mm. said, asking me questions. Like in Um, your personal life. Yes. In my personal life, even, (laughs) even like my dad, my stepdad, and they're kind of, of the, the camp of like, no, within a general, (laughs) you know, just kind of seeking out services like this it's just like eh, no that's okay I, I don't have to do that but they are very curious um especially to hear how I work with um black men and women it's very fascinating for them and so even in some of our conversations uh I feel like they've opened up a little bit more of mm. like, this is yeah I've never I don't think I've ever experienced this before and sometimes it's kind of hard and I'm just sitting there with this shocked face of like, wow, this, you're being really honest and vulnerable. You know, you can do this with someone for 50 minutes and it's just your space. And well, you think you could be my therapist? No, I can't. <laughs> I can't be your therapist. Um, but I've seen so many people, they, they've just specifically in my personal life become really open Um, A lot of people just in general outside of my personal life that have been asking, how do you go about this? Like, I I don't know. So it's kind of kept me away from doing it. It feels complicated. Um, And having resources to walk them through that. We've seen such an increase on social media of people sharing resources, books. How do you go about this? What does this look like? Normalizing a lot of things. Um, And so I've definitely seen that. And then just just the increase in clientele. I've had so many people just come generally. in, just yeah. generally, just coming in, not just for pandemic things. It's just this is so hard for me. This is affecting my marriage. It's just amplified, and I need someone to talk to. And we're just getting overwhelmed as black and brown therapists with so many people wanting to come in. They want help. We want to help them. And it's just, it's almost like it's not enough of us mm-hmm. um, to spread around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, I think also, and even just to add to that, um, in my personal and professional experience, 
there's a mix of both. Um, when it comes to challenges that I've noticed, you have this, you know, this current generation where they're just like, yeah, education, mental health, let's advocate for it. We're willing to seek out services because we realize like we need it and it's okay. There's no stigmas attached to it because they are in this, um, with a generation that they're learning mental health, you can take care of your mental health. And it doesn't mean that you're, you know, there's something wrong or you're broken or you're quote unquote crazy. But then you see the older generation and the stigma and the mentality when it comes to mental health is you don't talk about that. If you go seek help, you're crazy or there's something wrong. And I see that in my clients, the majority of my Latinx clients that come to seek services, they are younger the older ones, it's more of like, I'm going to just dip my toe in there and see, like, you know, but in yes. the end, they don't really commit because of these preconceived notions of, uh, if I go see a therapist, then there's something wrong with me, or I'm crazy. And now my community is going to um, label me that way forever. Um, so it, it's mm-hmm. such a challenge where I'm like, let me let's educate please. And it's okay to seek services. Um, culturally speaking, I think a lot of times from what I've seen is, you know, you don't share your problems with the Latina Latinx community. Like you don't share your problems. You kind of just internal within the family system, but you still don't talk about it. So you just kind of suck it up and deal with it. Um, but it makes me very happy to see that this newer generation is like, no, I'm not okay. I'm going to seek someone a professional to hold space for me so there's like still that hope of them being able to kind of lead the way for the rest of their community and their families of hey it's okay to reach out um and part of even what I do personally in my own home with my family and with my um friends it's education of like guys it's okay I'm not gonna be your therapist and I know you're trying to take advantage and ask me all the questions um but you there is somebody that can do that for you um so those are some of the challenges that I've noticed yeah I wanted to go back to that so I'm glad you you kind of hooked back around to it Abdi yeah I was listening to both you and Rebecca like allude to this so I'm going to try to kind of pull this together and then ask a follow-up question or two so, um, you know, I heard two things, um, well, three, one, this last year has been, has a, a unique loss, um, in the BIPOC communities, um, when it comes to like the challenges and what the pandemic has taken and all of the other tragedies of the last 12 months, but specifically as it, as it uh, pertains to, uh, those communities engaging mental health, I heard both of you describe that your families are coming to you first. And, <laughs> you know, you got, when you guys first described some of the unique nuances, um, really, and, and I, I heard like, this is the beauty of our, our cultures. Um, this is the beauty of these things is it's very familiar, familial and very communal. And so um, I, I would love to, to go down, um, that rabbit hole for a second, because as, as I am you summarizing what you guys are describing, it is, Hey, like our mental health world. So you guys are trained mental health professionals. We all, we all are here on this, on this podcast and we are supposed to have this separation 
mm-hmm. from these boundaries, the separation from our clients. And it is ethically informed, which ethics are, you know, um, designed to protect clients, the people, the greater, you know, community at large, um, from poor mental health professionals and the value, um, the spirit of the ethics is that those boundaries that we don't have what we call a dual relationship, which is one of the bigger no-nos, right? Like I am not connected to you personally in order to serve you professionally and without going into ethics, cause ain't nobody want to listen to that podcast. Um, <laughs> Hello. I do think this is what, <laughs> I do think this is one of the challenges, um, of the BIPOC communities accessing or seeking out mental health. Cause you're literally saying you need to do this different than the way your culture operates. And it's why your family members and your friends want to come see you for counseling, because like, I know you, you're in my community, you're in my family. So I trust you as a mental health professional. And you're sitting here going, I can't do that. You know, so thank you for being ethical since we all work together. Um, but let's talk about how the value of this ethics flies in the face of the value of the cultures and how, you know, I just would love to hear you unpack it. How are we bridging that? How is that being addressed? What's that like for you guys? What are your, what's your felt sense of that? I mean, sometimes I don't like my ethics. It doesn't mean I don't follow it, but like this, right. this felt like, God, this is, this makes it harder. So I'd love to hear your voices on that. Yeah, it makes me think of um, specifically whenever I get um, black male clients, the Mm -hmm. work it takes to build rapport with them, um, the work it takes to even get them in the door. um, It's just a lot. And working with them and then getting to a point where you realize you might have to refer out or something to that level sometimes that's been my greatest challenge. That's something that I've really struggled with because specifically for them, and it makes me think of like my father or my brothers that it's just, if I'm able to connect with you and I share my heart and myself, like I'm not trying to go anywhere else. And there's only so many of us (laughs) Mm -hmm. out there. Um, I think also speaking to um, what you kind of mentioned with with family and being able to provide that psychoeducation. I've had a lot of family members. I've had a lot of friends and friends of friends um, email me, call me. Hey, I'm looking for services with you. And uh, it always makes me nervous that I have to kind of explain what you just explained Mm, as far as ethics. Because if I explain this to you, and this may have been like your first, like you're gathering a lot of courage to mm-hmm. even consider this. And if I have to redirect you, um, I get really nervous because I'm thinking, man, they. That you'll they lose not, them this process. They might not try to pick this up. Like there's only so many times they're going to pivot before they're like, okay, you know what? This is not even worth it. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's, there's always that hanging in the back of my head, especially when I do referrals for my, my black clients, I am, to be very honest, I'm very tender with it. Um, If I'm going to refer you to someone, I'm going to make sure this is going to land pretty well. Um, Because like I said, if you have to pivot again, or they're not a really good fit, and of course, you know, we can't control everything. And that's, that's fine. But I try to do my due diligence in making sure that I have really solid referrals for black clinicians. 
yep. um, people that are going to be able to walk them through this process and not dismiss them or leave them mm-hmm. hanging because like I said, if they're left hanging or they feel like they have to do this too much, they're, they're just going to lose all motivation for it. And mm. sometimes it feels like you just have this one shot to help them land this. Um, so that's kind of my response to that. I'm sort of wondering too, you worded it in the sense of like they'll lose motivation, which is the, uh, sounds so accurate. Um, and you and I've had some side conversations about this. I'm also curious that if you have to do that refer out or you're trying to do the pass off or the handoff or whatever, whatever we want to call it, and you're trying to be ethical and do right and all those things, I'm wondering what belief that reinforces, um, about the mental health system that is unhelpful. Mm. You know, if there's a fear to engage that system or trust um, mental health, which I think is is to an extent global, um, but we're talking about the unique um, the unique nuances of the BIPOC community. If we have to refer out or we can't be that person for you, what kind of distrust, even though that's not the intent, are we reinforcing? Yeah. Um, trying to sit with my answer on that. Jenna, can you rephrase the question for me a little bit? Yeah, I'm trying not to to put words to it because I want to learn from you guys. But yeah. I'm, I know, so I'll speak from, uh, as a white woman in, um, in a white community, there are some who have a distrust of mental health. Right. And if I have to do a referral out or I can't take you, Um, and this was really hard for you to reach out anyway, and you've got your skepticisms about mental health. It's not accurate, but there's a real felt sense that that just reinforced something that you believed about mental health that maybe wasn't accurate. And I'm wondering if there's a unique nuance for that in the BIPOC community, that when you can't take this client or keep this client or see your family member, and they're already struggling to, to reach out for mental health because there's been challenges there you know, um, what kind of trust does that hurt or what type of belief system that's not accurate about mental health does that reinforce? Um, just curious about the unique nuances that might exist there because you're tender to doing that. Like that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Um, I definitely, when I do handoffs or referrals, I do a lot more psychoeducation and explaining than I would probably for anyone else. Um, a lot of my language is around, hey, I want to explain this to you and what this looks like and what you're presenting with. Um, I think it's really important for you to have a safe space to feel vulnerable and to walk through that process with someone that's really trained to help with your specific issue. And I, I do so much psychoeducation around that and walking them through that and kind of telling them, listen, I love that you're doing this. This is great. I am cheering you on. Um, This is kind of my recommendation for how we want to go about having the best help for you. And I've actually received a really positive response from that, at least in Mm. my experience of people saying, well, I appreciate your honesty. Thank you for explaining that to me, as opposed to I don't have openings right now, or, you know, I'm, 
I'm unable to work with you at this time. Here are some referrals where I'm just kind of left feeling like I don't, I don't know what to, so why can't you work with me? What's, what's happening? Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, well, I guess I'll try to reach out for these, these other referrals. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, but yeah, I, I've had a really positive response when I provide a lot of psychoeducation. Um, I know, I know some of my experience, very, some outliers, few and far between. I've had friends and family, just outlying family that don't understand the process and the ethics of the work we do. And I can do all the explaining about it, but it can be seen that you're in this field, that you're too good to help me. Um, Mm. That you don't want to provide services for family. And that's not the heart of it at Mm -mm. all. Um, and that's happened a few times, um, just with some outlying people, uh, within family and having to explain that and then just kind of, oh, okay. I know what this is about. That's fine. Feels personal. Whatever. Yeah. It feels personal and it's never that, you know, we can explain that and and talk about that, but, um, people, they want to start within their community with people they know, and they don't really understand what that dual relationship is. And I think it's what you just spoke of. It's that line. They, they don't know that, you know, the dual relationships of it all, how that impacts things. And like I said, I can explain all of that and they're still just kind of frustrated. And you know what? That's fine. I don't, yeah. I don't want to do it anyway. That's okay. So. And as you talk, Rebecca, like, I wonder, and not that I, I'm asking you guys to speak to this, but just, just, I wonder about the underlying systemic narrative of racial trauma that's existed and what, what that's, that, that exchange of, oh, you're my family member, I can't see you, or I can't take you on as a client because maybe I don't have that training or that specialty and you actually need this kind of therapist or I, I have a full caseload or whatever the reason is ethically that you're having to refer out kind of it pushes on that personal narrative, but even just the, some of the barriers and challenges um, for the BIPOC community in, in just accessing voice and help and being heard and validated, like even just the greater narrative that that might Some rule on of the that, system that is, is going to get in my way. Yeah. This is, the system is so broken in need of healing and repair, bigger than mental health, just yeah. But then the system of mental health has that within it, mm-hmm. the, the the racial issues that exist there, right? And yeah. and then you have this personal exchange, which you aren't speaking that narrative, but it's pushing on that, which is probably part of the work that they need to do to heal, right? Yeah. yeah. That negative cognition. And then the reality that it's done in a broken system, that's just... You know, so I think about the cycles that I'm, I'm, as I watch you guys kind of process through your experience and watching the cycles that are happening, I'm thinking, okay, we have the the personal one-to-one interaction that you're having and the negative narratives that that push on, I think, for for all people, like Jenna was describing, like, I've had to tell family members no, and I know that can push on a negative belief about yourself as a person, right, that we, we all know is there, but I think about the nuance here and then the greater 
the greater, I think about Bronfenbrenner's model of, you know, trauma and the layers there. You've got the one-to-one exchange, and then you've got the the context of mental health and race, and then you've got the greater global context of race. And like, mm-hmm. even the unspoken narrative that's getting pushed on in their soul that they don't even know, but they just know they hurt. Yes. I, and I the pressure... It. The pressure that that's putting on you as therapist of color. Yeah. And I'm thinking, oh, what a weight. Yeah. I love what you said about like just the mental health community and then just generally just medicine as a whole and its relationship Mm -hmm. with people of color. Like our trust has been broken. There's hesitation Mm -hmm. there. And so as a, as a black clinician, I'm having to work against, you know, those beliefs already right there that I don't trust this. I don't trust any of this. And then, like you said, just now it's still broken. There's, it's not perfect at all. And so having to navigate that, why would I not want to navigate that or do that with someone that I'm related to that I'm close to? So I'm going to go to you. Um, Because if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it with family and you don't want to do this with me. You know what? That's just that that's fine. It's the whole system. And I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to be a part of that. And it's hard. It's really hard trying to provide this psychoeducation. And I, you know, black people are deserving, black and brown people are deserving of working with Mm -hmm. people that look like them, that they don't have to code switch, that I don't have to explain this and that. And yes. it, it helps even more to do it with someone that it's a familiar face and you don't want to do this with me. And this is such a vulnerable, tender work and you don't want to do this with me. And so, oh, okay, well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to push this anymore. I don't want to try much anymore. And I'm just going to kind of resort to what I've been doing before, but no, I love what you just kind of said about that, Kimberly, about the the community and then just medicine in general. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to even offer an additional perspective just based off of like the Latinx community and, yeah, or just in general, the BIPOC, the BIPOC community and how diverse it is within that community. Because from what I'm hearing from Rebecca is, um, you know, generally the black community, this is how some of this process looks like with, I don't want to say rejection um, or having to have those hard conversations that will bring up certain feelings. But from my experience, um, I'll start with personally, when I've had to have those conversations with family members or friends the language that I use is more of, you know, I can be a better friend or sister or daughter or whatever my title is Mm. with them than I can be a therapist because, you know, I'm going to have a biased opinion. And there's great clinicians out there or professionals that have studied and um, will cater to your specific needs and are great and will be able to hold that space for you better than I can kind of, you know, throwing it that way. Um, I also think that from my experience, a lot of the Latinx community, when it comes to professionals, they will honor and um, take their word for it because they're the professionals. Um, or at least in my experience, that's what I have seen. So, and it's very interesting how it's a different perspective of like the hurt that they have experienced with um, mental health or just the medical 
um, I cannot find my words. Um, but you know, you know what I'm saying? Like those experiences, when I think of what I have learned from my community is you listen to your doctor, you listen to the professionals. They're the ones that know what they're doing. They're the ones that tell you what to do, which part of it is like, okay, I appreciate the openness to wanting to do that work. But then there's another side of me where it saddens me because of the like generational race, ethnic oppression of you're not good enough or smart enough to be able to do that. Um, And I think that's also a Mm. challenge for me as a brown therapist of being able to communicate to my community of, I know what I'm talking about. You know, I, I am qualified. I'm not just your sister or daughter or friend. I'm also a mental health professional. I know I'm not white. Mm -hmm. And just because I'm not white doesn't mean that I'm not qualified to do that. And that's where I see Mm -hmm. that struggle. So it's very interesting how it's different, but kind of the same in some areas. Um, And those are some different facets. Yeah. Those are some of the challenges that I, I see with, you know, the Latinx community. The words that come up for me as you guys are describing this is um well god if we get it down to the core it's a it's a power issue where yeah. there are different reactions to be I'll use Brené Brown's words power powered over mm-hmm. in the abuse of that and on the one hand that makes me not trust the system So it's going to take a whole lot for me to even think about engaging said system and, and how that shows up. And then on the flip side, I am not empowered to advocate for myself and feel capable and able to, yes, those people have a level of expertise, but you are are still an advocate for yourself. You know, your story, you're the expert in you. So this other side of the mental health coin where it's like, no, we are trying to empower you. And then you guys feeling empowered as clinicians of color Mm -hmm. outside and inside your community is what I'm hearing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of facets to this. Mm -hmm. I love that power dynamic that Abby kind of talked about because I think with mental health clinicians being educated and what that looks like in our families, on one hand, it's like, they treat it like it's the most important thing about you. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. You have a college degree. It's it, And it is, it's, it's such a big thing. Um, I mean, for my dad, my dad is an immigrant. So te- technically, you know, I kind of experienced that and that kind of push and, um, drive to like get an education. And then once I'm in this field and, and being educated on these things, it's just make sure you don't get too, you're not too heady. Don't, mm-hmm. don't get too big on yourself. Like I, I know, you know, these things and okay, sure. Mental health is, is important. That's great. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's, it, it, it's weird. It's like the tension in between of, like push to be educated and serve. And then also it's just for some of us, for some clinicians, we are educated more than our, our parents and our family. And so it's that power thing that you kind of just discuss. It's, it's something different here. And it, I think sometimes it's uncomfortable. Um, yeah. I just love what you said about the power thing. 
Okay, well, I want to take it back to another power issue. I think it's a power issue. Or at least that's it's how it plays out sometimes. Um, and I'm speaking from my, my own perspective. Um, Abdi, you brought up generational differences. Rebecca, you're sort of, you're actually picking up that conversation as it applies to your own family system and you being this expert and clinician and, and whatnot. So let's talk about how this shows up um, from a generational perspective. Um, you know, Abdi, you, you went there, you said, I, I see a very big difference in uh, generations responding. Um, Rebecca, at some point you were talking about millennials. I think millennials in general have been much more open yeah. to yeah. mental health. And then they send all their friends when they have a good experience. Mm-hmm. We have, we have had that experience in house, which I love. I'm like, <laughs> millennials yeah. are very pro mental health. I do like this yes. about millennials. Um, and, um, you know, this year has been the great accelerator pressing some of our older generations, um, as well that, you know, that is, um, not unique to any one generation. So let's talk about, um, maybe some of those differences that you guys see a little bit more, including how it shows up, um, maybe inside your own family system. Yeah. Where do I start? Um, yeah, I, I just kind of to piggyback off of being very grateful for millennials and that, uh, <laughs> that voice that they are proud to use and advocate for mental health. Um, but it is a challenge mm-hmm. with the older generation. Personally speaking, you know, if I were to think of, you know, my own family or um, my family's friends and the older generation, it is very hard to get through and, and normalize what mental health looks like and seeing them struggle and trying to figure out how do I help you help yourself and get help. Um, and it's just really hard for them to let go of that, I guess, maybe like security blanket of this is just how we've always done it. Mm-hmm. And we'll just kind of push through and survive. And, um, you know, my family, they are immigrants too. I'm, um, and it's weird cause I, this is a whole other facet also of kind of where, do, how do I identify, you know, I'm a first generation American, but also an immigrant. And I'm trying to hold on to this part of my culture and the Americanized side of me and kind mm-hmm. of like, you know, so with the generations, I think also another challenge, I'm just throwing out all these challenges that, <laughs> that I experience. Um, but it, it's, it's, the part of me of like, listen to my voice, you know, um, this is what I'm passionate about, or this is a way that we can approach this challenge. And the response I get is, well, you know, you're, you're just young, you don't know what you're talking about, or uh, that's very Americanized, like, that's not who we are, or we don't believe in that. So it's really challenging of, okay, well, how do we cater? Or how to do we mold something for it to be more applicable to you. And I think, and I don't know, I'm going to kind of just go into this direction, um, the importance of being able to have someone that may look like you and being able to get services from them because they can understand and sit and be like, I get it. I know it's hard. You know, I, I see all the struggles, you know, I can identify, you know, 
language and those barriers as well as cultural barriers and being able to sit in front of a person that you know that they literally know what you are experiencing and it's not just you educating and talking about what your culture looks like but they can be like yeah I get it I'm right there with you yes I can empathize and I I've also experienced that um yeah my brain went somewhere else but sorry it was beautiful I love what you mm-hmm. said. <laughs> I was sitting there in my soul going, yes, yes, yes. She's, she's speaking <laughs> so much truth right now. I think what you said about, it's like we're able to put language to things, to patterns that I think our families have never really sat and thought about how sometimes this can, this can be problematic or this is like a coping mm-hmm. skill that we've learned that's not healthy and being able to be within this community and say, hey, um, Taking, for example, I've used this with so many clients where what stays in, what goes on in this house stays in this house. Let's talk about how that's problematic. And no one has ever told them that. Or um, the way that we apologize in black families is sometimes like, hey, do you want to go to the store with me? Or, hey, are you ready to eat? Like, no one's apologized to us. Let's talk about that. And somebody within that looks like me, that knows that language, that knows what what that looks like within my family, they're being able to to kind of tease this out with me and and Mm -hmm. make sense of it. And now, wait, I can do something different with this. I never realized that that, that's why I struggle with this. I struggle with apologizing. I struggle with being vulnerable and honest um, because these patterns in our family that were there to, I think at one point in time, did keep us safe. Um, Yeah. Because we, I mean, think about the the history of our people. It's just like we are able to do something different now. There, we are not in the same space we were, and we can choose to do something different in outside of the cycle that we've been in. Um, but I, I kind of, I, and I love that Abby said that um, in session it's happened where I've used that language. You kind of sort of see an exhale that oh. <sighs> that's a thing. Oh, no one's ever told me that. Like, you know, that, that my parents have told me this, this has been in my family and this is, this is what has kept me from a lot of things and maybe I can do something different. And so, um, yeah, I just, I just love what Abdi said right there about kind of putting language to things. It sounds like it's so permission giving you know, like you're able to because you understand you. I mean, I think about just the unspoken. I mean, you're you're speaking to some things, the generational uh, beliefs, roles, family roles, cultural roles, that kind of thing that you're, you're giving permission to say, that's what we call a familial role or a systemic role. And here's how mm-hmm. it's harmful. But it's, it's this permission-giving, non-shaming invitation yes. to reconsider yeah. with someone that looks like them, which I think would feel really safe. And I think about all the things that are probably firing off even in your neurobiology, like the mirror neurons and all these things that we probably can't even articulate verbally that are so healing in that relationship that's taking place to hopefully shift a a generation into healing in a a better place. But 
such a complex process. And I think about, I mean, I've said this to both of you and I'll keep saying it. I mean, I want y'all to write books and, and disseminate wisdom and share this with other clinicians in the world. But I think about how hard that might even be because it's just kind of this felt like, yes, I can speak to some things, but some things you just can't speak to. And um, yeah. the complex work that you're doing is, is, as I hear you talk, Rebecca, I'm just thinking, wow, but how beautiful of an invitation and how safe and healing, even just the ability to name like, hey, that's, that's a harmful way to apologize. I understand it though. Like it's not a shameful lecturing. Yes. It's just a, I get it. Yes. That's, that's, that's what we do, but let's talk about, it's a little bit like in, in trauma work just in general, when we talk about like disassociation and that it's a gift to help you survive yeah. and find the best health that you can, but eventually it unravels and, and expires and we need to do something different. And so no shame, but let me invite you into maybe a different way. Yeah. Um, so beautiful. I, I want to go back to very common in our field. In fact, even becoming more culturally common because of, and I will say her name again, Brene Brown's work, but um, Abdi, you use the word empathy and um because I, I move at a hundred miles an hour in my noggin on a pretty regular basis. I went to not only like her definition, but then I also have like a mentor that I love that like we go back and forth about the difference between empathy and sympathy. And she doesn't agree with Brene Brown's definition on all of that. But that aside, um, the general, the general value from all parties is that it is me trying to find something in me that can connect with the thing that you're describing. And I will never be able to do that as a white clinician in the way that you guys can for the BIPOC community. And it's, it doesn't mean I won't endeavor to hold space as best I can, but you talk about when they look at me and I look like them, I can step into generations of habits that were some many um, were built to survive abuse um, and systemic oppression, it would be very hard for me to sit across that room and try to offer any level of validation from a place of identification. It doesn't mean I've never been wounded. It doesn't mean I've never, you know, any of those things. It's just unique. And I understand this this dynamic that you guys are talking about. And I'm going, yeah, they need someone that looks like them, that you, you step in with some relational equity um, because you relate to the culture, you relate to the experience in a way I'll never be able to claim to do. And I think that's really important for white clinicians to understand, not because, not because we would ever say, stop holding space, you know, because you can't do it. It's like, Hey, there's, there is a vacuum where we need more um, clinicians of color to fill that. And I, 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 I have a handicap here. Um, and I will do the best I can with it, but I, my heart has been so to support you all and, um, and, and more. Like I just, I have such a heart for that because there's something really unique and beautiful to what you can do for those communities. And I just, I want to 
honor and acknowledge and celebrate that because um, the work that you guys are doing is really beautiful in that. Thank you. And write a book. I'm, I'm with Kimberly. Please write a book. <laughs> yes, yeah, please write a book. Please. please. <laughs> I'm curious. We've talked a lot about um, the BIPOC community and, and seeking mental health, and we've talked a little bit about it. I've, I've heard you guys note it, but just – for the BIPOC clinicians, um, this has been a heavy year. This is, it's a heavy context in general. You guys are talking about, I mean, trying to fit, fit into the mental health context where the ethics don't always line up with the, the need. And we want to honor the ethics. We also want to honor heritage and culture and race. Um, that feels like a, con- a continuing weight and complexity that's unique. But I also think about this recent year and you, you take away connection, community, you take away coping skills. I mean, you just, you just add to what is already hard. Um, and, and whatever you would feel comfortable sharing about your own personal experiences as professionals in this year, but then even what you're seeing for professionals, um, who are responding to this big need have been for a long time it's not like 2020 brought up this new phenomenon it's not but I think there's no but 2020 was the great accelerator Mm -hmm. good and bad (laughs) yeah yes so just curious how you guys would speak to that just for the on the clinician side the the helper side and we already are seeing so much burnout just in general in the helper community but I feel like there's an added wrinkle here there's an added weight um and what that experience has been like um, Mm. and what the needs are as you as you see them i would say it's it's felt like a greater burden in 2020 to serve your people um Mm. my heart hurts if you say that it it feels like i i have it's so difficult to turn people away um and you're having to do so for your own mental health for your own mental wellness. Um, but it, it sometimes it does come with a heaviness of there's just not a whole lot of us. And I want to be able to help as many people as I can. But I'm also trying to care for myself as well. And I think in 2020, we saw it. We, we were collectively dealing with so much trauma together, and especially Black people when you turn on the news, I'm turning on the news too. Um, I'm seeing the same thing you are. And I'm trying to care for myself the same way you're trying to care for yourself. And I've, I've had clients come in and it is just heavy and I'm, I'm feeling it right there with them. And it's, that's a hard work to have clients back to back Mm -hmm. where you're processing that. And you just, you have to make sure you're filling yourself up afterwards, but it's difficult. And it was mm-hmm. it's still portions and in, in points in time where I still deal with that, where it's so hard to say no. It's so hard to have that boundary of this is only so much I can give based off of what's happening in the world. And I, I, I want to be able to help everybody. I want to be able to serve yes. you in this way. I just, I can't. And that's so hard. Mm-hmm. That's so hard. And I, I think that's just, the honest truth of the matter that I've, mm-hmm. 
and I think that's not just me, that's just other black clinicians I've I've spoke to that they're like, man, I'm I'm not only tired dealing with the pandemic, which we all are, but just what we see in the news and the constant invalidation of the black experience and having to validate that with uh, your black clients, sometimes having to navigate complicated feelings with your white clients. Um, mm-hmm. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. And, and I don't mind providing that space and serving in that way, but it's, it can be really, it can be a the cost is high for you right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I agree with Rebecca and I, I feel it as well. Just that it's just heavy and it's a lot. I think that, um, the workload has increased, um, because of the pandemic and all the other things that have just been thrown at us. And I think when, when I think of like my other fellow BIPOC clinicians, um, and even my Latinx community clinicians and fellow um, Latinx friends that are in this field as well. But my first response is like, I see you and I feel it too. And I know it's hard. And I know it, it, sometimes words are, it's all you can offer. Um, but I do want to just like encourage them, like we are doing hard work and Mm -hmm. nobody prepared us for this. Um, and I just, you know, kind of just to keep saying like, see, adelante, you know, keep going. Um, I think the work that we are doing is, is hard, but it's fruitful and it's helpful to our community. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an honor to do what we do. Too. As, as heavy as it can be, it's still an honor to be able to do this this good work and empower our people to give them hope to, to provide this very safe, tender space that I can, like I said before, I can just exhale. I don't have to be anything. I don't have to be super perfect in this space. I can do my ugly cry. For some clients, I've had them come in with a bonnet, and I love it. I support <laughs> it. They get to say all the things that they might not be able to say in a workspace, in school. Um, and as heavy as it is, it's, 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 a, it's a beautiful work. It's an honor to do this and to serve in this way. I have a, I have a two-part question acknowledging that there's a uniqueness to how you can serve your own community that like I won't be able to do um, as a white clinician and acknowledging at some point um, I think it was you Rebecca was talking about like there's just not enough clinicians of color mm-hmm. you know um, available for the need I think we all validate and acknowledge that Um. You two were an answer to prayer because Kimberly and I were praying for Aspen House um, to diversify and to be able to support in that way. Um, and I still have the question that I would love to hear from you guys and learn from you. Two part one, 
because there's such a great need when a white clinician is serving someone from the BIPOC community, what would you want us to know to do that well? And the other side of it is professional. As your colleagues, um, as your white colleagues, how do we support you? What do we need to understand so that our support is fruitful and helpful um, in general and then specifically to this season? Jenny, can I have the first part of the question? I have to like my brain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the first part is um, what what wisdom and encouragement and challenges can you give us as white clinicians serving the BIPOC community as clients? Okay. Um, I would say, and and I got this from conversations that I've had with my husband, that this space that you provide for your BIPOC clients, it's, it's not an experiment. It's not a space to mm. gather data and, you know, like it's, it's racial voyeurism. I'm just going to sit in this space mm. and, and I'm not going to do the work that is required. I'm just going to use your space as sort of my source of education. That's not what it is. Um, this therapeutic space is, it's to provide this experience for your client to provide safety and you have to do your work. You have to do your work. I think as therapists, I mean, our field challenges, challenges us to do that anyway. Like you have to do this mm -hmm. work. You can't take people where you're not willing to go. You can't take someone to the 10 foot in if you want to swim in the four foot in all the time. And I think these conversations that have to be had, um, it starts with yourself. You, you sitting with your own biases, your own experience, educating yourself. There's so many things out there, so many different resources. And I think it's a disservice to just not access them and just use this therapeutic space that you have with a BIPOC client as your source of education. As your training ground. As your training ground. <laughs> and that's not fair. That's not something you do. Um, you don't right. do that. And mm -hmm. so we have so, it's just so many resources. I can't emphasize that enough um, that there's so many books to be read, so many different avenues of research. I think also just expanding your echo chamber. It's really easy for us to be on social media and different things and have that echo chamber that can sound like us. Um, but expanding that to people that don't look like you, that don't agree with what you agree with. I think also even reading material, I think there's so much material um, that white people tend to go to that has a focus on like the oppression and racism of black people. And, and I think that's a part of it. That's fine. But there is more to black people than just <laughs> this oppressive history and racism pain. and pain. We, we actually have just real stories that have nothing to do with our race and it's out there. There's music mm -hmm. out there. There's art. There is history. There are books and movies that just talk about, the black experience of just navigating random things. I kind of think of um, Issa Rae. She's one of my favorites and she had a whole series, The Awkward Black Girl. Like it's just a black girl just navigating the world, being awkward, being weird. And that's just expanding your echo chamber a little bit as opposed mm -hmm. to just having it to this small little world that everyone thinks and looks like me and 
I'm going to go into session with my BIPOC clients. You know, I'm going to learn all I need to know right in this space. And that's not what that's for. Yeah. And, and I agree with what Rebecca um, said. That's my answer too. Um, I think it, <laughs> there's just, it, there's so much power that can come by one, like, yes, doing your homework and not just allowing the 50 minutes you get in session to be your, your only educational resource. Um, because that's yeah. not the purpose of sitting with a client that is, that looks different or that has had different experiences from you. Um, I think I would even challenge, you know, my fellow non-BIPOC colleagues to be open to experiencing um, certain things, um, culturally speaking, at least, um, because then you can, like, on firsthand, like, say, like, I know what that feels like. I went, you know, I experienced this as well, and I'm not saying, let me gather my words. And when I talk about experiences is putting yourself or educating yourself of what a cultural event looks like, or um, kind of like what Mm -hmm. Rebecca said, like it doesn't have to just pertain to the oppression and the racism that a specific community has um, endured, but there's so much when it comes to culture with the BIPOC community. And even for myself as a Latinx person, I cannot identify with all these other diverse, you know, Latinx individuals. I can say like, I have familiarity with Mexican culture and with um, Honduran culture and with Spanish because that's my own personal like bubble. But when I get to talk to like someone that's Puerto Rican or Dominican or Colombian and I'm like, tell me more, tell me more about, you know, your dishes and your celebrations and the way that you speak, because even though we speak the same language, it is so different. You know, one word means Mm -hmm. something completely different to a Colombian or a Mexican than it does for a Honduran person. So just kind of putting yourself in that place of like, wow, let me experience the joys of your culture. Um, I think back of, of one time when um, I actually, I was in Spain, I think I was visiting family and me thinking like, oh, I have knowledge of this culture. And the moment that they have these um, things called sobremesas and it's like a little table in the kitchen and underneath there's like this little heater and the, um, the tablecloth is almost like a blanket. So everybody gathers around that and you put the blanket over your legs. So then you keep yourself warm and that's how you do community. I had never experienced that, but I thought that it was so wonderful that I was like, that's really wonderful. (laughs) And I was like, where can I get one of these back in the States? And, And I realized like, this is how you do community. And this is why you sit around the table for three plus hours, just having a conversation and enjoying each other's company which looks different than when I am with my Mexican friends or with my, you know, fellow Hondureños and Puerto Ricans, because culturally speaking, it's so different. And when I get to come with a client that I know that that is maybe what their culture looks like and say like, Oh man, yeah. uh, Tell me more. I, I, I had this experience too. And I can only imagine how wonderful it is to be able to sit with that on a daily basis. Um, and I think, at least for me, like I'm only speaking on behalf of my experiences. I find it joy, like, wow, okay, you know what I'm talking about. 
you might look different, but you know what I'm talking about. And I think that just allows that, um, that rapport to just kind of get stronger. So that's, yeah. that's what I yeah. want to your, your education is beyond the one session, breakout session at your national right. conference. Yep. and the one pissy training <laughs> that they offer. You need uh, to be saying, tell me more outside of the counseling settings. Yes, yes, yes. And I, and I think, you know, I'm sure Abby can agree as well. Um, all of it comes from such a heart posture of humility, which mm-hmm. I think drew me to Aspen House. Like, just my experience experience with you and Kimberly, it's always been a posture of humility that I don't know everything. Um, and I'm committed to this work. It's a hard work, but it's a necessary work. And I am not here to make you feel like you are the source of my education. Um, I'm willing to have the hard conversation. I'm willing to be uncomfortable. And I'm committed to that because this is a good and necessary work. So I think to tie it all together. It's just this, this heart posture of, of humility of learning from, from other people that don't look like you. Okay. So second part of the question, um, how do we as uh, white non-BIPOC colleagues support you guys? What do you need? Um, you know, what challenge us to do better in this area? What do you need as far as encouragement support? Like, um, we want to do that better. I think some people need to hear it. So what would you say? Um, I would definitely say using your privilege to uplift and empower BIPOC voices, um, sharing their resources, having books that are just as much a part of your, your library and sharing that with clients, um, using your voice in that way. That would probably be my initial answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and to add to that, um, I think of, you know, if you have a platform, use it. Kind of with everything that we've talked about, um, I think the non-BIPOC community clinicians, individuals, may have slightly louder voice. So I say use it. You know, I think it's very encouraging and supportive to be able to use your resources to empower, you know, the, the BIPOC community. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, it breaks my heart. Um, when, um, the, the automatic go to when the word privilege is thrown out is that it, you know, should elicit a lot of shame and, um, I, I, because I have pursued, been pursuing my own education on all the things, um, felt really empowered to go. It is what it is. It is, it is objective. If you have the privilege or not, what you do with it is, um, is the, is the key here. And so I have it. I don't get to act like I don't have it. I do have it as a white human being in the setting. Um, and so to go, okay, I have it. How am I going to use it? My focus is on what do I do with it instead of getting stuck on, um, the fact that I have it and shame spiraling, um, in that way. And so I have felt, I've, I've been listening to a lot of voices on that and felt really challenged to do that. So, um, I love that you guys brought that into the space. That's true. It's good. 
Let's keep having conversations. I love it. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Yeah. Just when you get to work with like your favorite people and then do something like this and have this conversation, I just, oh, just full of, of joy and gratitude and, um, they bring light to, to the space that they're in, even remotely on video. (laughs) They do. They're bright. Their personalities, they're present. They're just bright. They really are. Um, what was your takeaway from our conversation today? You know, um, there was so much there. I, again, I mean, I know I've said this before. I don't know if it's just the space and the status that I'm in in my life, hitting that one-year-ish mark of the pandemic and turning that corner. And um, But we've been honest, tired, burnout. You know, so I'm in a tender space. And I think that impacts my takeaway. Um, I My takeaway was just a felt sense of compassion, and I was moved. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think the takeaway was more experiential than any one set of words. I was just so moved by those two and um, what this year has been like for them and the BIPOC community. And then the words at the end were just so succinct um, and perfect. Like, I just want to use, I don't have shame about noting my privilege, and I just want to use it to support. I want to use it for good. I'm like, if, if, if that's how it's played out and I have privilege, I just want to use it for good. So that's my takeaway. You know, I want to use it for good. I want to use it. I want to be a good steward of it and go learn and use the resources. And so that's probably, it was, it was a felt thing. And then it was just that succinct calling at the end, like use my privilege for good. Yeah. I think uh, mine was very experiential too. um, As I walk away from the conversation and these aren't new realizations for me, but just, I mean, the podcast is a different experience than how I, we, we typically sit around the table. In fact, when we were, we're not recording, we were talking about we need to, oh, gosh, we need to do this more often, just sit around and I know. We did talk about that at the end. Like, I miss being around the table with you. I know. We need to – we need that. Um, but the ability for them – and this is one of our values at Aspen House and one of our personal and professional values for you and I. They held and in such a beautiful way. They did. They did. I felt challenged. I heard truth. I heard hard realities and weight and trauma and grief. And I heard hope and kindness and compassion and joy and 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 yes, they held it was so, so well, beautifully held um, in such a generous way. Because we know them, we have the benefit of knowing them and, and where they are, and it's been a rough season for us all. And talk about burnout, like we know they didn't have to show up that way. 
they may not have been able to show up that way. And they, the fact that they did is just such a gift. It was generous. Um, they were very generous. Just so generous. And so um, just encouraged and hopeful and challenged and full of gratitude because I get to work with them. I get to, I to run in run in tandem and in parallel with them and that is that's That's a privilege it really is yeah it really is they are um delightful oh so delightful so so many things i'm walking away with but um just the experience of being with them is is a gift Thank you for joining us. Arable Podcast is hosted by Jenna Mountain and Kimberly Galindo. And edited and co-produced by Chris Vargas and hosted on Podbean. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Visit our website, arablepodcast.com, and find Arable Podcasts on Instagram or Facebook. You can also find both of us on Facebook. You can find me, Kimberly Galindo, on Instagram at the Kimberly Galindo. And me, Jenna Mountain, on Instagram at the Jenna Mountain.